Thank you so much. Uh, I, I've actually, this is the second time that I've preached on this stage. Uh, you probably don't remember the first time. I don't know how many years ago. It was so long ago, I actually had hair. No, I'm, I was gorgeous back then, I'm telling you, it was, it was amazing. Uh, but th at that time, it was the largest stage I'd ever stood on, so I've always had this kind of like enamored view of Kingsway Christian Church and what you're doing, so it's good to be back with you. Um, as Matt said, I, I, about three years ago, I switched titles. I had taught for 22 years at a Christian college. I was Dr. Moore, and three years ago, I became Pastor Mark, and I think I traded up. It's, it's so great to be back in the local church. That is, to me, the church is where people get saved. This is the most important thing happening in our culture. So I'm, I'm so glad to, and honored to be a part of you with that today. Now, the church that I'm at, I probably need to give you a little bit of background so uh, you'll kind of get where I'm coming from. Our church, as Matt said, it's, it's a ridiculously large church. We typically, on a weekend, will have between 24 and 25,000 people in church. And that's not all who come. Like most people at our church come maybe once or twice a month. I'm telling you, Phoenix is a pagan place. Only 13% of people go to church on any given Sunday. And so the kind of church that we've developed is specifically a church for men. Now, don't be offended at that, ladies. Here's what we know to be true. If a woman comes to Christ, 33% of the time her whole family comes to Christ. If a man comes to Christ, you know what the percentage raises to? 93% of the time, his whole family comes to Christ. So we go hard after dudes to make it a dude-friendly environment. So we'll have a large screen TVs in the lobby uh, with ESPN on all the time. I'm telling you guys, it's like, so they'll be watching the Colts lose today. Um, too soon? No, well, they're playing the Saints. You can't root for them against the Saints. Well, okay, you can. I hope they whoop them. But anyway, that's the kind of church that we have. So we go after guys, and we've, we've been so good at it that <laughs> we've got a lot of guys who love to come to church that don't even believe in God. It's stupid. One guy came to me about a year and a half ago. His name's Jeff. Big burly dude, his wife's family are like the real estate moguls of Phoenix, very wealthy family. And he comes to me and he goes, he goes listen, Pastor, uh, you, need to, you need to talk me into God. Excuse me? Well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I said, I don't. Why, why would I care? I mean, what, you can keep coming to CCV without believing in God. He said, I know, but I feel like a hypocrite. Right? So the atheist is telling me, I can't come to church because I feel like a hypocrite. He said, in this last month, I've invited five of my neighbors to come to church with me. They've all given their lives to Christ. I don't even believe in God. So you got you to talk me into God. And I said, okay, we'll try. So we started meeting, and about the, about the fifth meeting in, I, I'm, I'm sharing with Matt a story of how I was literally part of a miraculous healing in Ethiopia. Trust me, it was not because I'm so spiritual. I, I, but I'm laying my hands on the guy, he gets healed. I don't have time for that story. But I'm, I'm starting into this with Jeff, and he goes, uh, you can stop. I believe in God. Really? What happened? I met him. Serious? Yeah, where? In my truck. I didn't know God would fit, but okay. I mean, <laughs> tell me the story. And he starts to unpack the story of what it felt like, and he described Revelation chapter four, the throne room of God. He'd never read Revelation before. 
So I said, dude, I, I think you met God. What are you going to do about it? And he looked at me like I was stupid. And he said, well, don't, don't you like baptize me? Yeah, we can do that if, if you like. When, when do you want to schedule that? And then he looked at me like I was really dumb. He goes, what, like you don't do that now? And I, th- I say, I love pagans because they just cut through all the, you know, I can't say it in church, but they're pagans. And, and so he, I said, okay, we'll, 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 get, we'll do baptism right now. Do you want to call your wife? Now his wife had been praying for him to give his life to Christ for like 15, 20 years. I knew she would want to be there. And I, I said, do you want to call her? And he goes, no. This is between me and God, not me and her. I said, okay, you're going to enter eternity saved, but you might enter it sooner than you think. <laughs> so I, didn't, I actually didn't know this. He texted his wife on the way from the coffee shop to the church, and we found a pair of shorts. We got this beautiful outdoor baptistry, and so we're, we're, we're in the baptistry. I'm getting ready to dunk him, and I see her running up across the lawn, like 50 yards away. She's just running and tears are in her eyes and she's screaming, Jeff, Jeff. She's so happy that he's doing this, but so angry that he hadn't called her. And I'm laughing because I'm going, I'm not going home with a girl. So, you know, there she goes. <laughs> it's, it's a great church to be a part of. But because of our environment, we actually are more interested, some of you will get this, we are more interested in pleasing non-believers than believers with how we do church, which drives some believers crazy, but because of that, we're a comfortable environment for people who are, I don't call them non-Christians, I call them pre-Christians. They don't know that they believe in God yet, but they will. And, and so it, for, for those of you that might have like showed up here today by accident, you know, someone drug you here, you finally came. Or, or maybe you thought it was the gym and you came in ready to work out or whatever. It, hey, it happens. If, if you're here and, and this is a foreign place for you, listen, I'm probably more comfortable with you than those who have been here since I was here last. And I, I want to talk to you about a book that even if you're not connected to the church, you probably heard of it. It's the, the book of Revelation. The, it's the last one in the Bible. It's nuts. I mean, some of you, you're gonna, if you read some of this stuff, you're going to think, okay, John was in exile on an island, like he was, he was a prisoner because of his faith. He was put on this island, and when you read what he wrote, some of you are going to think, he had to find some mushrooms out there somewhere. Because <laughs> there, there's no other explanation, but there's dragons, and there's lions, and, and, and one, in chapter 5, a lamb with seven horns and eyes all around is like too close to Chernobyl or something. There's weird stuff in here. And because of that, a lot of people think the book of Revelation is irrelevant. It has nothing to say to my life because I don't understand what it's saying. Let me just address that for a second. If you think this book is weird, you're probably a little bit right. If you think it's irrelevant, you're completely wrong. Even a book that's 2,000 years old, that's filled with all these odd symbols, addresses the most important questions of life. And the reason that people are so confused about Revelation is they're asking the wrong questions. They're asking questions that the book of Revelation is completely unconcerned with answering, like this. Here's the most common question asked of Revelation. When is Jesus coming back? Doesn't care. John, John doesn't care. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. All he's, he's interested in more important questions like this. Who wins? That's important. When you're on an island exiled for your faith, you got to know who wins. 
And the reason John writes in code, listen, the reason he writes in code is because the emperor was crazy. Domitian was going around hunting down Christians and killing them and throwing them in prison. And John wants to write to his congregations, don't, don't give up on Jesus. That dude's crazy and God's going to take him out. But if John writes that political propaganda, then his people will be assassinated. So what he does is he says everything about the emperor that he wants to say, but he uses code language. And he, he dips back into the Old Testament scriptures and picks up imagery that's familiar to Jews who became Christians. The images of the dragon, the beast, the harlot, the, 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 the seven churches, all are filled with images that a Jew would go, oh, I see what you did there, very clever. But a Roman soldier picks up the same scroll, reads it, and goes, they're just nuts. That, that makes no sense to me. So do you understand why he had to write in code? And do you understand, if we ask the wrong questions, we get goofy answers. In fact, every person who has ever guessed the specific timing of Jesus' return, everyone, 100% have been wrong. Now, somebody's probably going to get it right, because there's so many nut jobs out there. If you're one of them, I apologize. You'll get over it. There's so many nut jobs that are guessing the specific date. There was another one in September. Did you notice on the news? World's going to end. It didn't. They're wrong. Somebody's going to guess it right, and when we're raptured, they're going to be going, I told you so. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) chapter eight and nine deal with a critically important question. If you're a Buddhist in here today, you've asked that question. If you're a a Muslim and you're here today, you've asked the same question. If you're a Christian or an atheist, you've asked the same question, why is there evil in the world? Haven't you? Especially when the evil touches you. You want to know, why is God letting this happen? And even more important, when is God going to do something about it? Because you say he's a loving God, but he still allows all kinds of tragedies, all kinds of trials. Did you know uh, on the news I saw this morning, it's the 100 year anniversary of the worst crime that's ever been committed in the state of Indiana's history. There's a 16 year old girl who was kidnapped, abducted, and brutalized over a long period of time, and they found uh, her body with over 100 separate wounds on it. It's 100 years ago. But we still remember and we still ask the question, why does God allow things like that to happen? And part of the answer, uh, my friend Johnny Presso was here last week. Uh, I listened to his sermon online and he did, he did a good job helping to answer the question. When, when, the, when the book of Revelation starts unpacking the suffering of the world, the first thing it addresses is war. Remember the four horsemen, chapter six? Those four horsemen don't describe what happened in John's day nor what will happen at the end of time. This is what always happens. And if you go to the Middle East today where ISIS is active, or if you go to dozens of other places where war is taking place, you see the same progression of someone on a white horse with a crown says, I want that territory, I want that money, I want those people. So he sends in troops, and the troops come in on a red horse, and the red is from the blood of those who are martyred. And then a gray horse always follows is famine. 
And then a black horse, death. Did you know that 80% of people who have ever died because of war in the history of the world died not in battle, but because of starvation and exposure due to war? This is what always happens. The reason there's evil in the world is because there are still evil people in the world. And we all get that. We all get that. But when you turn the page to to Revelation chapter 8, it's a different cycle of suffering. We're not in the seals anymore We're in the trumpets now. And what I want to do is read part of chapter 8 and part of chapter 9 together. Can we do that? If you have a Bible, you can find it. Just go to the very back of the Bible, take a left. Chapter 8 and 9 deals with this important question of suffering in the world and when is God going to do something about it. It opens with these words. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That does not mean that men are raptured 30 minutes before women. (laughs) You see what I did there? Yeah. Oh, come on. Don't be a hater. Here's what it means. Whenever you read silence in the Bible, it's because people's jaw are in their chest. Because God has slammed down his fist and said, enough! That answers the question. When is God going to do something about the evil in the world? He already has started to do something about evil in the world. You might not like what he's doing, but he's not sitting idly by watching people get away with stuff. It already starts with the seven trumpets. Verse 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now seven, this is the first kind of code that I want to decode for you. Seven uh, means it's actually four plus three, which you could have figured that out on your own, I assume. But the four in the Bible, whenever you read the word four, it represents some kind of humanity. The four compass points of the wind. Forty days and forty nights when it rained was to cleanse humanity. Jesus suffering like a human was forty days in the wilderness. So four represents humans. Three represents God. I don't know why even among the Jews three represents God, but it does. Father, Son, Holy Spirit for Christians. Holy, holy, holy for Jews. Three and four is when God says, I'm going to get involved where humans live. So we have the seven days of creation where God says, I'm going to get involved, and at the end of the seven days, I cease from creation. Seven typically represents God doing something among humans. Have you noticed seven in Revelation yet? Okay, there's seven churches, seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven seals, seven eyes, seven horns. Seven is everywhere in Revelation because John is saying, God is, to answer your question, when's God going to do something? Right Now, today, God is already doing something, not just about the global suffering, but even about your suffering. And I don't know what yours is, but we all have it, right? There are some of you sitting here right now that uh, you're working through uh, a marriage where one of you uh, committed adultery. And you're trying to figure that out. Can we stay together? Can we work this out? Can I get over it? Can I forgive? Some of you are dealing with addictions, either in your own life, a chemical, a computer screen, a liquid, or maybe in the lives of your children. And you're going, God, I don't know how to to deal with this. I don't know how to absorb this. Some of you are dealing with the suffering uh, in your physical body. 
My, my friend Paul, I called him yesterday on the way out here. Paul used to live in Indianapolis. And all of you have actually benefited from his work. Right, right downtown where the convention center is, you know those walkways that go from one building to another and all those, those windows so in winter you can walk inside? Uh, Paul, Paul's company built those. He made a lot of money, did really well, moved to Phoenix. Uh, he was divorced at the time. He met a woman, and most of you guys in here would go, oh, wow, he outkicked his coverage on that one. She is a bodybuilder, beautiful woman, so now he's got a beautiful wife and lots of money. And uh, They decided they were going to move to New York to start a ministry with a couple that they were dear friends with them. And so the four of them were going to go together and plant a church that was kind of like a restaurant church meeting place for people who are far from God. It's a great plan until the other couple, the wife died from cancer. And then within six months uh, of being out there, uh, Paul gets cancer, third different kind of cancer. And in one of the last treatments for that cancer, now I don't understand the, the medicine involved in all this, they, they, they were shooting something uh, into his body that was to kill the cancer. And his body had a very nasty adverse reaction to it. And it put him in ER for 20 days. And it, it, his fingers literally turned black. They still may have to amputate a couple of his fingers. And I was asking him how his hands were doing. He said, Mark, I, on, on a scale of 1 to 10 in pain, I am either at, at, a, at a 7 or an 8 every single day with my hands. And he says, it's so frustrating. I can't, I can't feel my fingertips, but my hands ache with shooting pain. That, that's his life every day. And I think about Paul. He's been through so much in his life, three different cancers and friends dying. And I think, God, when, when are you going to do something about it? And some of you are sitting here going, yeah, that's nothing. What do I, t I tell you my story? I get it. No, I get it. We suffer a lot in this world. And often we suffer, again, Johnny unpacked this last week, because there are evil men in the world doing bad things. But sometimes we suffer in this world, not because of men, but just because we're in, we're in the world, right? Ask the people in South Carolina about a flood. Ask the people in Mexico about a hurricane. Ask the people in Joplin, Missouri, 2011. Do you remember that? I was living there when that tornado cut a swath through our city seven miles long and a mile wide at the widest. That's exactly where I rode my bike to work every single day. I was, I was with the crews out looking for bodies. I was with the crews uh, it, when our church turned into a Walmart because the Walmart had disappeared. I mean, it was, it was just gone. And as I watched people come in with their, with their deep suffering, here's something that I recognized. That when Mother Nature is at her worst, God's people are at their best. And I saw it in the tornado. If you're not a believer, you, you are at your worst as well. There were people who were looting. We actually had very little looting. And <laughs> this is, Matt, I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I think it's funny. There, there was a guy who was caught by some of our citizens looting houses that had just been devastated by a tornado. That's just wrong. And so they uh, stripped him down to his skivvies, they duct taped him to a telephone pole, and they called the police. 
And the police said, we're pretty busy right now. We might get to it by the end of the day. People can get, be at their worst when there's human tragedy. But the church is always, with Katrina, with Joplin, with any other natural disaster, the church is always the first people in and the last people out. If you're asking what is God going to do about human suffering, he is going to allow it so that the world can see the stark contrast between the people of the light and the people of the dark. And that's precisely what Revelation 8 is talking about. Listen, listen to this in verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. Now, if you don't know, here's code number two. The censer actually is the prayers of the saints. So if you've ever seen the, uh, an Orthodox priest, you know, waving a censer and the incense is, is burning, you've seen it in the movies or something, that actually is what, what Revelation is talking about, that this, 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 this incense is going up to God like our prayers go up to God. And we have an interesting opportunity here in Revelation because we know exactly the prayer they had prayed. We know who prayed it, we know when they prayed it, and we know what they said. Chapter 6, verse 10. You have your Bible open? You might want to slip back there. You can read the prayer that God is now answering. They called in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The very martyrs persecuted because of Jesus Christ, now in heaven, wearing right robes, they turn to God. Even in heaven, you're going to ask the same question. God, how long? God, listen, listen. God hears your prayers. For those of you that are barren and you're asking God, when can I have a child? He hears your prayers. For those of you who are asking, how long will my parents have this struggle of their health? He, he hears your prayers. He's not deaf to what you're saying. And every tear that drops from your eyes, every prayer that raises to God from your mouth is answered by our holy God. You gotta believe that. And it may not be in the way you wanna answer it, but he will answer those prayers. Here's his answer. Coming down in verse uh, five, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Earthquakes are interesting. This is code number three. Earthquakes in the Bible are when God stomps his feet and says, I'm angry about this. I, I grew up in California, so we... I, I, knew, I know about earthquakes. And when I moved to Missouri uh, to, go to, to go to college, they all mocked me from being from California. They said, look, you're from California, and, and because of the San Andreas Fault, California's going to fall off into the ocean. Do you realize, and I pointed this out to my Missouri friends, do you realize that the Mississippi River is actually an earthquake fault that is larger than the San Andreas Fault? Now let me ask you a question. Would you rather be in California when it falls off into the ocean or Missouri when it falls off into Kansas? <laughs> you see my point? In the Bible, when there's an earthquake, God is going, look, look, I, I care about what's going on. And when you see the news of what's going on in the Middle East, and you care about it, so does God. 
When you read about some mass murderer or about corruption in politics and you care about it, so does God, not just in the future, right here, right now. And here's part of what God answers to our prayers. Verse six, these are the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And with each trumpet blast from here to the end of the chapter, a new plague comes out, a new natural disaster so that the third of the rivers are destroyed and the third of the sun is destroyed and the third of the earth is burned up. It looks a whole lot like the 10 plagues of Egypt, if you ask me. And what John is doing is saying, hey, Christians, can you remember what happened in the Old Testament, the code of what happened with Pharaoh? What did God do through the plagues? He destroyed the the pagans and he rescued the believers. And a lot of them suffered in the plagues as well. And you're going to suffer through natural disasters. There's not a man, woman, or child here today that if a, if a hurricane blows through like it's going through Mexico, that you're going to be exempt because you happen to have a Bible in your hand. It doesn't work like that. There's not a person in here today that is exempt from marriage struggles because you happen to pray at night. There's not a person in here whose kids aren't going to have some difficulty in school or growing up. Look, we live in a world where there are evil men that cause war, where there are natural disasters that cause suffering. Hurricanes don't hop, skip, and jump over the houses of Christians. You get that, right? In fact, it is through the plagues that the righteousness of the righteous is seen for what it really is. We don't even want to avoid suffering in the world because that's our opportunity to be the light of the world and the hope of the world. But let me tell you what you do not want. You do not want to suffer from supernatural disasters. A natural disaster you can handle, but a supernatural disaster is too devastating for anyone to survive. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Chapter nine, when we turn the page right in the middle of the seven trumpets, There's a line drawn in the sand, and God says, you do not cross this line. He doesn't say it to you. He says it to the demons. Listen. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, which is, this code number five, The star is actually Satan. And you might recognize, if you're familiar with your Bible in Isaiah, Satan is the morning star that fell from heaven. Or maybe you'll recognize Luke chapter 10 when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Satan is a star that falls to the earth. And all God's people said, no, don't say amen. Say, look out. Because he was up there and now he's down here wreaking havoc among us. You don't want that. You don't want any part of that. And that's why verse two is so important to us. When all hell breaks loose, like literally right here, it says they opened the abyss. When they opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given the power like that of the scorpions of the earth. Now, the the full description of these locusts is given down in verse seven and following. 
If you, if you were to give an artist this description, they might come up with something that looks like this. A picture, oh, that's nasty. So here you have the face of a lion, uh, the body of a locust, a, a sting of a scorpion in its tail. Now, I know that you don't have a lot of locusts around. You have some, but you don't have plagues of locusts like they do in the Middle East. If you're a farmer in the Middle East, the thing you're most afraid of is locusts because when they come through, there is nothing left and your family starves. If you live in a place like Phoenix, Arizona, you might be afraid of a mountain lion. I actually have, there's a mountain lion that lives in our neighborhood. I know it sounds crazy, but a buddy of mine just lives up the street. He walked out to his pool one morning and there was a mountain lion there just staring at him. Jumped an eight foot fence without any effort at all. Those th those are, that's a bad cat right there. We get being afraid of mountain lions, especially if you're walking a small dog. To a mountain lion, that's a popsicle. They don't care about the leash, that's just the stick, they'll take it with them. They are fairly dangerous creatures. But scorpions, actually, more people are afraid of scorpions than mountain lions, because I have those as well. And the, we, we do have one that gets about six inches long, and once a year I'll find one drowned at the bottom of my pool. They are nasty, they're so nasty. In fact, don't tell my wife. I, I go out and check the pool almost every morning because if there's a scorpion in there, I need to get it out before she sees it or she'll never get in ever again. But the real danger scorpions are only about an inch long. Uh, they're called uh, bark scorpions, and th when they sting you, if you have an allergic reaction, they can, they can absolutely kill you. My, my friend Scott, he lives three streets over from me. They took their baby out of the bathtub and they set the baby down, but there had been a scorpion uh, in the towel and they didn't see it. So they, they sat their infant, uh, little baby girl, right on top of the scorpion and it, it stung her so bad, released all of its venom, uh, she stopped breathing. And they called 911, ambulance came, and on the way to the hospital, they started giving her anti-venom. You can only give an adult four vials of anti-venom. They gave her three as an infant. Now, the ending of the story is brighter. She did survive, but I mean, these things are nasty. And if you live where there are scorpions, you hate scorpions. I, I, I love nature, I love animals, but I will, I, I will never not kill a scorpion. They're just, they're just bad. The other thing that they, that they really feared, and this is where the long hair comes in. If you lived in Israel, the most vicious warriors were actually not the Romans. They were the barbarian Scythians that came riding in and they rode on horses and they had long hair. So what we have here is everyone's worst nightmare rolled into one. Everyone's worst nightmare rolled into, what is your worst nightmare? What's your neighbor's worst nightmare? You add all those together, and that's what you have when demons are let loose in this world. I don't know what your position is on demons or the spiritual reality. I think because we live in the West and we've kind of insulated ourselves, we're not as aware of the activity of the spiritual world as many people are who live closer to it. I've seen demon possession firsthand. It is terrifying, the, the grip that a demon can have on an unredeemed soul. But listen, if you're a believer, God puts a barrier between you 
and the dark forces of this world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that because you are baptized into Christ, there is a seal put on you that says to every demon, do not touch this one? It's right here in chapter 9, verse 4. They were told, the demons were told, do not harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And you're familiar probably with the 666, the mark of the beast. We're not going to get to that till chapter 14. Halfway through the book, we've already seen the more important seal, the seal of God. Here's what you need to, what you, you don't need to fear the mark of the beast. You need to celebrate the mark of the Holy Spirit on your life. Because of that, there is the worst kind of torment and suffering in this world you are exempt from. Now, I don't want to minimize what you're going through. If you're going through a divorce or barrenness or bankruptcy, you're underwater on your home or you're out of breath in your relationships, I get it. The the suffering is hard. Sometimes it feels overwhelming. In fact, right right after the the last service, there was a couple of uh, of ladies in the lobby that came up to me and just wanted, wanted to talk through some of this because of the suffering they were going through and with tears in their eyes. They were just going, we just don't get it. We just don't get it. How long, how long, how long? Wrong question. The question is not why. The question is who. I I don't know why you have cancer. I I don't know why your spouse has dementia. I I don't know why your kids uh, are addicted to drugs. I don't don't know why. But if I did and I told you, would that help? Would that take you one step closer to being free. No. If you knew uh, the explanation of why God allows ISIS free reign, apparently, if, if you knew why there was a hurricane in Mexico, why there was a Katrina or a Joplin, if you knew the answers that God could give you, it wouldn't help you heal. What you need is not why, but who. Who is the one that draws the boundaries around our persecution and suffering? You know him, and you will know much less suffering than your neighbors. Let me tell you a a very real story of a friend of mine who was in the grips of Satan, even though he was at the top of the world. I I was walking off stage at our our church, and I saw this guy. He was sitting right right about where, where you guys are. He was, I'd never seen a human being that large. He was only about six foot five, but he had wrestled in the WWE at 295. He's a big boy. And so I, I saw a freak of nature. I wanted to find out who he was. So I walked up to him. I said, dude, what's your, what's your name? He said, my name is, is Matt Weesey. He wrestled, if any uh, uh, wrestling fans, he wrestled under the name of Luther Reigns. He was slated to replace Hulk Hogan. He was that good. And he was that great of a performer. And so they came up to Matt and said, look, we want you to replace Hulk Hogan, but he's kind of a, a, a good guy, so to speak, and, and you gotta you got be a good guy, so we need you to have a clean drug test. Can you do that for us? We're not concerned about the steroids, because, <laughs> hello. And so you, you can do your steroids, but you can't do cocaine anymore. And, and Matt says, yeah, I don't see that happening. 
and they because he's addicted and they really really wanted him so they said Matt Matt could you just could you do less cocaine this week for a drug test than you did on the last drug test and he was yeah I, I think I can uh, he couldn't and, and his life comes crashing in around him part of the reason he didn't care about all the fame he didn't care about all the money because his wife was making more money than him as how do I say this in this audience um, uh, an adult actress. He, he was living in the throes of fame and wealth and pornography, but he was, he was absolutely a prisoner. And because of the demonic influence in his life, he was so addicted to drugs that he had a drug-induced seizure that paralyzed him. He had, a, he had an aneurysm in his brain that laid him out three days later, three days of lying on the couch, three days of uh, defecating on himself. His friends finally find him, and he's just, he can't move. They rush him to the doctor, and the doctor is taking his history, saying, what are we dealing with here? Uh, did, did he take any drugs? And they said, oh, yeah. They said, what drug? He was taking a, a form of Vicodin, which is a, a painkiller, because w when you're wrestling, it's like being in an automobile accident every night. He said, okay, how, how many Vicodin does he take? And they said, 90. A month? No, a day. And the doctor just backed away and said, well, he's going to die then. Because the withdrawals from Vicodin are so violent that due to the damage of his body, there's no way that he could survive if he had withdrawals. What was interesting is that obviously he's alive today because when he had that, that stroke, it, it killed 30% of his brain, just destroyed it. Part of the brain that, that was destroyed was the part that sends you into withdrawals from drugs. And that's the only reason that he survived. Matt, after that, realized that he was completely trapped by Satan. He, he, was, he was in a web of, of sexual immorality, of drugs, of violence, of selfishness. And he gave his life to Christ and had, to God's credit, a miraculous recovery. It was actually because of what he suffered physically that he was able to recover spiritually. See, sometimes the suffering in our lives is actually God's gift. But there's a parameter. If you're a believer, there's a parameter. Now, if you're not a believer and, and you're hearing this message, listen, I, I got to tell you, if you don't have the guardrails in your life of the Holy Spirit, there is no, there's no stopping point. There, there's, there, there's no barrier. There's, there's no protection for you from the spiritual forces of this world. And I would just, I just tell you, if you don't give your life to Christ, you cannot like, you, you can't even ask the question, when is God going to do something about it? Because you're on the other side of his wrath and vengeance, not on this side of his grace and protection. Now, I, I told you that story not so that you would feel sorry for Matt. I tell you this story for this. All of us have a Matt in our lives. All of us. Someone who in big or small ways are vulnerable to the deeper suffering. And normally we concentrate on natural disasters. We concentrate on the wickedness of evil men in this world. But look, there's a whole nother layer. 
Not only does Revelation 9 talk about demonic attack, it also talks about angelic attack, believe it or not. You can read where the next trumpet is blown and the angels at the river Euphrates are released to go destroy the world. It's not just the fallen angels that attack this world. By God's command, there are some angels of God that are going to attack this world and carry out his vengeance. And you're asking how long? Pretty soon. We are going to reach a level of suffering that is unprecedented in this world, and you as a believer don't have to experience chapter 9. You do have to experience chapter 8. Is that making sense? You are going to suffer because of natural disasters, but you don't have to suffer the supernatural devastation of either demons or these pit bull angels that God releases. You might ask, God, what are you going to do about the evil in this world? It's a wrong question. God is asking you, church, Kingsway, what are you going to do about the suffering of this world? Because you have a neighbor right now that is heading to a Christless eternity. You, you have a friend at work right now that has demons with no stop signs in front of them. You have a, a family member, a friend, a coworker, or a neighbor that does not have the hope of Christ. And God is asking every one of you, every man, every woman, every child in this room, don't, don't ask me what I'm going to do about it. God says, what are you going to do about it? And it doesn't take much. You may not be a great evangelist, but you can invite them to this place and get them connected to these people so that they would be able to experience the love of Christ in such a tangible way that they would want to be part of what you're part of and have the protection that you have. See, to me, the, the, the power of this message is, is simply this. I can't do anything about chapter eight. I, I'm gonna go through it, you're gonna go through it, right? I can't do something about chapter nine. And you're not gonna take chapter nine out of the Bible like Martin Luther said, but you could take chapter nine out of somebody's life simply by getting them connected to the people of God to experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you want that? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you write on every heart a name, implant on every mind a face of someone, we all have someone, who right now is headed to a Christless eternity. In your mercy and grace, empower us, convict us, compel us to be as kind to our neighbors in a spiritual catastrophe as we would be in a, in a physical catastrophe. And just as we're at our best when Mother Nature is at her worst, help us to be at our best when Satan and his barbaric hordes are at their worst. Help us in these moments to truly be convicted by your word and do something for someone who could do nothing for themselves. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.